Hey listeners, before we get into this episode, I have a quick ask to make. I started this podcast as a research project on how to be a top individual contributor in the product design space. My goal for the show was to learn what it takes to be an individual contributor that's doing amazing, impactful work that they love doing day in and day out and getting paid top dollar while they do it. Becoming that type of individual contributor is the ultimate job security. With close to 100 hours of interview recordings, this has naturally led to the creation of the short form video articles that synthesize my learnings into 10 minute listens of actionable content. You might recognize these as my morning walk episodes or the hashtag shorts episodes. To my surprise, those episodes have been very well received and listeners have enjoyed the synthesis of what I've learned. This has led to the next chapter of my research project, which is beginning to synthesize what I've learned into a new newsletter called Thinking Out Loud About Design that you can subscribe to right now for free. Thinking Out Loud About Design is an email newsletter and podcast that basically contains all my synthesis for my long form interviews. It's pure distilled learnings that you can apply to your career immediately. This content is for you if you are a couple years into your career and you're trying to make that move from mid-level to senior designer and senior designer to staff designer. I mainly focus on becoming high-performing individual contributors in the product design industry. A free subscription gives you full access to the newsletter, podcast episodes, and website. You won't have to worry about missing anything because every new edition of the newsletter goes directly into your inbox. So my ask is this. If you have gotten any value out of the way of product design, or if it's helped you in any way or someone you know, please subscribe to Thinking Out Loud About Design and get the distilled learnings on being a staff-level individual contributor. You can find a link to the newsletter in the show notes of every episode of this podcast and on my LinkedIn page. Just look up Caden Damiano. Thanks again for listening and supporting the way of product design. I wouldn't be doing this if you guys weren't listening. Now, on to the show. I have a question for you. How do you know that you're on the right track when performing research? To answer that question, I talk about the subtle art of research rigor with DJ Green, research manager at Jane. In this episode, we take a deep dive into her process of translating research insights into actionable steps that product managers and designers can use to prioritize and execute great work. If you're struggling to influence product strategy with your research work, this episode is for you. On the other hand, if you're looking for a 10-step process to better automate product discovery, then look somewhere else. At the end of the day, research is just structured, critical thinking, and like any other skill set, is something that needs to be practiced to get better at. DJ provides invaluable insights to some of the most asked questions in the research rigor debates that we're currently having in the product community. So pay attention. She is super generous with her expertise in this interview. DJ, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, welcome. Yeah, how about really quick, you just introduce yourself to the listener and just talk about where you've been, um, how you pivoted into UX research, and where you're at now, and what you're planning on doing, maybe. Cool. Yeah, so my story's kind of weird. I started from an academic path. I have a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in cognitive psychology, so the study of thinking and decision making and all of those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Thought I wanted to move into academia, found out as I was 
pursuing a PhD that I did not want to do that. And I was studying how different types of digital interface affect decision making. So I ended up working for a little startup in LA. I lived in Southern California at the time and they were interested in having me come on board to pretty much they were in the ed tech space and making games for learning for kids and they didn't want to uh, mess up kids brains because we were talking about like virtual reality and augmented reality and stuff like that so i was there to help them make good decisions related to that and i just kind of fell into product and ux research very quickly I didn't even know what it was called, didn't know what I was doing, but just sort of happened naturally for me. And then I was told that it was an actual industry and I started pursuing it a little more formally after that. That's really interesting. I, I have been hearing a lot of people that like originally wanted to start in academia, find their way into UX research. I, I'm sure it's actually a great substitute for... <laughs> actual academia is just going into doing research for companies and it's probably a lot more fun and potentially lucrative as well so you found your way into research and yeah then like what what happened next so you 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 found your niche in like technology research like researching uis and how they influence users yeah so tech was cool and not only was it cool and paid well, like you said, but it was fast. And I think that's what was so appealing for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Looking at academic research, you grind on a very narrow scope question for sometimes years at a time. Mm -hmm. And you write one massive paper or a few if you're lucky and try to get those published in scientific journals. And that's kind of the way that goes and you hope that you've made some kind of impact out there somehow five people read it (laughs) exactly (laughs) exactly so uh business research uh product research strategic research was so cool to me because it was just fast what i would be asked to do in months i'm asked to do in days or a week and i just enjoyed those constraints and playing with those Mm -hmm. levers so i was hooked pretty quickly (laughs) Yeah, and, and now you're at Jane as a lead UX researcher. That's right. So right now my title is research manager. They took the UX out of it because I span partners and yeah. then also kind of market research. But, you know, call, call it whatever. It doesn't... You're <laughs> it's just all per- research. <laughs> well, what about Jane drew you... Like what problems that you were solving at Jane made you want to use your talents there? Mm. Yeah, so I've I've dabbled in different sizes of companies, doing research for little startups, kind of in the small, medium-ish, trying to hit a high growth trajectory, you know, trying to take off, and then uh, larger enterprise companies. And I'm what drew me to Jane was that. They were, you know, 150, 170 employees and um, doing a lot of really cool things. But I love about that size of company because usually there's, there are more questions than there are answers a lot of the time at that stage. So I, I also enjoy doing lots of 
different things, diff answering different types of questions. So I find that that's about the size, maybe a little smaller, maybe a little bigger, but that's about the size where I can uh, creep my own scope to my liking. Creep your own scope? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and start dabbling in other things like mm -hmm. marketing or brand or things that touch product, but maybe sometimes don't get all the rigor and love. Yeah, so it's like you get an opportunity to find your role. Because mm -hmm. if it's a bigger org, you, 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 there's an opportunity to get pigeonholed. Not a great opportunity, but yeah. Now I like that too. The smaller the team, like the more you get to define, like I do the work that interests me and stuff. And if you do it well, like people are like, okay, that's your job. That's your thing. So in e-commerce and Jane's an e-commerce platform, right? That's right. There's a lot of assumptions right now in the industry that like everything that there is to know about e-commerce optimization has been discovered and that there are best practices and we just need to follow these best practices. What have you learned by you know leveling up the research efforts at Jane that we haven't figured everything out yet? And like, what are those different nuances to like e-commerce that research has helped with? Yeah, so I mean, just my gut reaction to that statement is like, that can't be true. You couldn't say that about any industry leaves no room for progress or innovation mm -hmm. so that's certainly we not know, true we definitely know someone that thinks like that i i've I know people i think like that yeah yeah i know that there is a lot of reliance on best practices in e-commerce and just sort of mirroring mirroring competitors i see that a lot i see our competitors do that with us and all of that kind of thing. At Jane, we're a little bit special because, well, we're very special, but <laughs> one of the things that makes our company special is that we are a seller platform. So kind of like Etsy or Amazon or eBay, mm. uh, folks come onto Jane and they sell goods on Jane. Unlike some of those other platforms, we are curated. So to be a seller on Jane, you have to apply and a group of people has to approve you as a seller then you submit products and we approve each individual product. So it's a very curated, hand-picked experience. There's where your best practices break down, right? We also have a limited run products on the site. So we're not just, you know, apparel and lifestyle goods and those products, once they're on the site, they're there forever. Uh, we have rotating inventory and rotating products and limited times, like three-day deals, and they end at the end of three days. So just this this whole model is a little bit nuanced, and I would say if you know your brand and you know your value proposition in e-commerce, any e-commerce company would feel that they are very nuanced because you're trying to mm -hmm. defend your space, and there are just special considerations wherever you go. So. Yeah, that's a good answer. I think there's a lot of company. I, I think not just the e-commerce vertical. There is just best practices everywhere that give the impression that there's like a one-size-fits-all solution. And, you know, I don't, I'm not, I actually, I refuse to bag on product managers because they do definitely see like the value proposition nuance. I I would say that there are designers, though, that have that one-size-fits-all process mentality that if you just run this through design thinking, we'll come out with a good solution. And what I think uh, breaks down those processes and best practices, especially with like design thinking frameworks and stuff like that, 
is that research kind of brings up like the actual tact, like establishing tact with the problem, right? Totally. Yeah. So how um, have you helped? How have you been telling that story on like, okay, well, I mean, we need to actually define the problem first before ideating. Yeah, well, it was pretty easy at Jane because there was a very willing culture there, um, which is rare. And I found that it all the way up and all of all the way up and down the business, whether it was, you know, a, a merchant intern or the founder, they all wanted to know who is the customer, what did they care about? why do they shop on Jane as opposed to other alternatives and how can we as a business lean into what naturally emerged for our demographic and the way that our business fits into the competitive landscape how can we capitalize on that so so it was a pretty everyone around was very hungry for that information yeah so i started with really understanding what were the naturally occurring assumptions about the customer and about the value proposition within the organization because there always are whether you know that you have assumptions or uh, you don't they're in they're in you they're somewhere so I actually went UX on internal first where I was just interviewing people from all walks of life all departments and trying to understand like if you had to guess who the customer is if you had to guess why they shop on Jane what would you guess and I found a bunch of trends. And so I put those together in like a provisional persona. This is our shared understanding of who the customer was and I presented it back to them. I saw lots of nodding of like, yeah, that is kind of who I think shops on Jane. And then that was a great springboard for, okay, well, next week I'm gonna tell you whether this is who shops on Jane. And kind of evaluating, we, we take those sets of assumptions, we turn them into hypotheses, and we start testing into all of those things. Yeah, that's that's really cool. So you uh, first did an audit on what everyone's mental model of the customer was. You did a, an assumption audit. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, DJ coined the term, because I've never heard of that before, but that's a really good idea. Like, first getting everyone on the same page, making it deliverable like a provisional persona, and then comparing it to the actual data. That That's cool. So, and what kind of triggered like that hypothesis or did you learn that somewhere else? I think it's a practice that some other folks have probably used. When you do research enough, you realize that your your greatest challenge at first in your first 90 days is getting over whatever is in everybody's head already, right? You mm-hmm. want to come at, come at people with the data-driven mm-hmm. insights, and sometimes there's some overcoming that needs to happen. But yeah. provisional personas are in use, so that's that's one thing. It's a persona based on uh, everyone's shared understanding or mm-hmm. or assumptions, right? And then uh, going out and testing that. What it, one nice thing about that is it kind of makes everything objective. So when I present the provisional persona back to the company and I see all those nodding and it's like, yeah, this is our shared understanding, it stops being, well, Caden thinks, well, Danielle thinks, 
and it starts being, oh, okay, we all kind of think this. We can all kind of agree that we think this. And now it's this objective thing that we can poke holes in, and it, it takes the the personal out of it. Yeah, you've created distance from the potential problem. Yeah. And inevitably, every time I've done that approach, inevitably, there are some things that are absolutely right. Assumptions were based on, you know, lots of people told me. So that's a kind of, you know, a mm -hmm. form of research. So these things emerge from somewhere. And a lot of the times, half the provisional persona is correct. And then the other half isn't. So being able to focus on like, yes, you were all right in these 10 ways. And now we know that. And we can stop guessing. We can start stop arguing. These were the ways that were surprising for us all. And how are we going to change the way we're behaving based on that? So yeah. different conversation than me versus you and us versus the CEO or whoever. Yeah, well, I've been going through a book called The Universal Methods of Design. It's like a big purple book. Great book. Whoever's listening, like... It, it's basically like a, a toolbox of a hundred different ways to frame up ideas and stuff. But what I found with uh, design thinking tools like personas and journey maps and stuff is that their main purpose is to frame an idea and, so that you could justify decision making. It's not, it's not exactly the process. It's, it enables the process of like kind of greasing up those conversations in creating distance from the problem, so it's not opinion anymore. And uh, you you said something that like at the end of it, uh, at the end of like these sessions where you go over the provisional persona, there's like this some level of surprise at the end of it because like connections are made. Right. Would you say that's an indicator that enough research up to that point has been done at least for that part of the problem definition phase? Once we start surprising people, I think that. It's easy for research to stop at surprise. We did it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Voila. Reveal the findings. Shock and awe. And then we yeah. all leave that meeting and we go back to our desks and we continue doing what we've always done. <laughs> so I try, I try really hard with varying levels of success to pull, pull the insights through to actions for different people in the organization I try to give people some ownership over tasks uh, in the very same meeting. I don't let anybody leave with the feeling of surprise. I try to let everybody leave with the feeling of what they're going to do next. Or a very clear opinion that what I suggested is not what they want to do. That's enough progress for me too, just to get them thinking about action as opposed to insights, because insights are so vague. Mm-hmm. That's good. I always... That definitely deconstructs like a thesis that I have because I always just thought like insights, not opinions. Like, but insight, you don't stop at insight. You have to translate it into action steps. Totally. Yeah. And then action, and inevitably those action steps are probably more research, but different type of research. Yes. Right. So once you've defined the problem, how do you know you've done enough research once you've like narrowed in on like a solution path yeah so let's just oftentimes research is project-based or business initiative based so there's some initiative there's some idea there's some project some feature set and you're you're either defining the scope of that or there's a user 
jobs to be done, a user problem, user need you're trying to meet. So in those cases, just outside of personas, right? And just understanding your, your customer. But when there's actually a problem and you're trying to provide enough information for the business to make a decision on that problem, yeah, it's like the golden question is how much is enough, right? And we've spoken about this before, but of course there are there are really objective mathematical ways to know when you can be pretty confident in something or fantastically confident in some set of results. So there are those approaches and I geek out on those and Jeff Sorrow wrote Quantifying the User Experience. That is a fan he's a fantastic voice in mm. the field around objective quantification of things that are squishy like usability testing and applying some rigor to some of that stuff. Oh cool. Yeah, really yeah. good resource. But let's just say you don't want to dive into stats and math world today. A really good rule of thumb, honestly, is just, okay, empathize with your stakeholder. Uh, are you talking to the VP of product or the CEO or product manager? If you were them, would you feel confident in the data that you're providing, right? Like, could you put $5 million on the line for that data? Could you put $50 million on the line for that data? Uh, what would convince you to put $50 million on the line if not your data? So like, could you get more? Is it enough? Are you talking about a small UI change that's gonna go through A-B testing anyway and you were just trying to fail a little bit faster in the design phase, so really low risk environment? Or are we talking about you're making this big recommendation to um, build an entire new application for your platform you probably had better have more than five people on that uh, in that yeah. participant pool. Five out of five people thought this was <laughs> really good, and I think we should mobilize all our dev resources. Exactly. Um, yeah, sounds funny in hindsight, but <laughs> which is funny because I'm pretty sure you and I both know about projects where that was the data point of mobilizing like millions of dollars of dev resources was test well 10 people and they just got lucky and the executives were probably like zoning out in the meeting and they're like yeah let's do that and right. so or maybe you know yeah. it was an exec's idea and it was evaluated uh-huh. minimally and a lot of the times with projects I, I always ask this especially at the business initiative level are we gonna do it anyway no matter what mm-hmm. I say are we gonna do it anyway do the courtesy of telling me that we're going to do it anyway because it, it changes how I approach the question. Yeah. It changes how I test. I start testing into how we're going to do it instead of whether we're going to do it. Yeah, because, I mean, especially maybe with, like, regulatory stuff. Like, why are we doing this? Because we have to or we'll right. get sued. Um. Right. Exactly. Or maybe um, sometimes, and I've said this before to, to some folks on our sea level but hey if it's a pet project it's a pet project and you know as a founder of a company you kind of have that right to pet projects it's uh, your investment that you're choosing to make innovation doesn't often come out of usability testing so sometimes we got to take a gamble mm-hmm. admit that it's a gamble admit that it's a pet project and i'm so with you 
and I'll tell you, I'll try to mitigate all the risk on how we're doing your pet project. But as long as we're transparent about like, yeah, this is a gamble. This is a risk. Yeah, that's, that's very cooperative. I think that is a way better way to say that and like approach it that way, frame up the project that way instead of saying like, oh, freaking executive founders like coming up with crazy ideas again and we're so reactive and stuff. Like actually getting that, extracting that like disclaimer that we're making a bet here. I personally don't feel too confident about it, but you're the boss. I'll do everything I can to make it work. Right. Which I think is speaks volumes on like your attitude. Well, I think product people tend to follow that line of thinking. We're all kind of risk takers by nature. We're all kind yeah. of... You know, we're innovators, we're creative, we're, mm-hmm. we want to push things, we want to push the limits. So as long as you can empathize with where your leadership is coming from when they have these ideas and mm-hmm. we can, you know, try to, try to mitigate the risk of that gamble as best we can. But gambles are fun in business. I mean, we, mm-hmm. should, we should have a lot of fun with that as Prague people. Yeah, and I think, I, were you at the front workshop? Like the oh, this past one I didn't make it. Yeah, it was. There was a lot of talk on bet-based thinking, where we talked about how you frame up anything, any decision you make as a bet, and you show your confidence level in it. And you could also do like that fear-setting exercise where, hey, if everything went to crap, like how bad would it be, and could you live with that? And so, I mean, that makes it super easy to like do like really quick like usability testing for maybe like a button color change is like what happens if this goes wrong oh maybe conversion dips a little bit or maybe the customer customer might be slightly frustrated but can we recover real fast if we find out yeah okay this is low risk let's not let's stop doing research like <laughs> totally our other times like yeah if we don't if customers don't understand this like the the federal trade commission is going to come after us yeah, I can't live with us just going at it right now. Like, let's do some more discovery. Defining things in risks, like you said, or defining things as in like, hey, you're the founder of the company. You know more. You, you read the P&L. You know how we are financially. Obviously, you feel confident that this isn't going to destroy us financially. If we try this out, I'm going to suspend my disbelief for a totally. few months and like get this done. I really like that perspective. Yeah. Now, that being said, it's not all roses, uh, and I tell them on the regular, I tell lots of folks on the regular, you pay me to battle from my angle mm-hmm. in every meeting. You pay mm-hmm. me to advocate for the user. That's what I'm here to do. That's, that's the ground I'm defending all the time. And so I won't go down quietly, but, but if, if an executive, for example, is seeing all of the information I'm providing all of the information that other lines of business are providing on a topic, they have that bird's eye view. And if they're saying, no, we're gonna go ahead and take this risk anyway, there may be something else going on there that you and I just don't know about. Is there a cool partnership Mm -hmm. uh, in the works or a set of investors or something that will push the business um, to the next level and they're willing to take that risk, right? Yeah, and that's that's basically like business strategy is you take risks, you have resources that you could allocate to solve a problem. And I mean, as like individual contributors, even like a little bit in the management, like we don't have that visibility. 
and I mean, as long as like you feel like you've made the case, like, hey, here's the pros and cons of going this path. We've done the research. This is the risk that you're taking on, and they're like, cool. I don't. I feel. I still feel good about it. Yeah. I. It's healthy to trust them. Totally. Yeah. I think it, that's the healthy thing to do. Not easy thing. So you you sound like a person that makes it your professional duty to not be a yes person. Oh, oh dear. Yes. <laughs> I'm a researcher, so yes. yes. <laughs> now, I bet whoever any of your coworkers listening to this are going to be laughing right now. I bet. it. So would you say that I don't want to put us on the same level as doctors? We're not on the same level as doctors. Disclaimer. But like, do we have like some kind of professional like ethics or creed or something that's unspoken in design that says that we need to at least make a case? My view, because part of my whole job and my my whole life as a researcher in academia, as a researcher in business, is about pursuing those truths and having yeah. confidence in truth and objective knowledge. Yeah. So I feel very strongly that, I mean, for multiple reasons, but I definitely feel very strongly that it's my job that I am paid for my data-driven opinion, my data-driven insights, and for my expertise. So I come into every meeting and every important discussion with that mentality, and the folks in that meeting or discussion are also paid to come to that meeting with their expertise and and their opinions and what's fueling those opinions. So yeah, I mean, I I very strongly believe that that's my that's my job through and through. Mm-hmm. And and wouldn't it be silly like if you just were watching a business start to tank and uh, you just didn't what say anything because yeah. you didn't want to rock the boat? The boat's sinking. I mean, you're gonna. Yeah, you have vested interest in this outcome. (laughs) We're all on the same team, ultimately, really. So, yeah, I would never, I would never watch watch a business make poor choices without putting up a fight. Yeah. So, with uh, that in mind, it sounds like your background in academia gives you kind of this ethos of scientific thinking, you know, where it's it's the search for objective truth. Yes, I would say. Right. So how do you, so there's actually in design maturity, you know, there's like levels of maturity and like, you know, the, the first one is designers are nice to have, are you researchers too. Two, we make wireframes and we do basic usability tests. Three, three is usually, like level three maturity companies have like the, the, Larger design teams, you know, maybe like from what I heard from IBM, might be IBM, like large design teams, like they're definitely like, there's an obvious investment, but they're not strategic partners. And then there's level four, which is like hypothesis scientific design. And then level five is like strategic partners, Mm -hmm. like the pinnacle, like we actually drive business decisions. But the level before that is like applying scientific thinking to design. So how have you applied that ethos of scientific thinking into your practice? And maybe uh, if you've ever coached or mentored people, like how do you go about reframing it to art research isn't just to find out if it 
to okay or if it's usable. It's us to find the objective truth that this is going to perform well in the market, right? Mm -hmm. How do you do that? Well, I think it starts with, it starts with you need to know what success looks like. So when once you define success criteria, it's very easy to design a test to determine whether something is successful or unsuccessful. And designing that test, that's all that scientific thinking, scientific approach. But the tricky part sometimes is really knowing what success is. What is success for, you know, we can talk about certain features, well, success is revenue. And absolutely. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, this is why we're all here. That's why we all get paychecks. However, we all know that there are things that are are sort of adjacent to revenue and that may interact with revenue in less tangible ways than just like, I clicked and I made a purchase. Things like brand recognition and attitudes around brand. No no large company would say brand doesn't matter, right? Like, that's just Mm -hmm. not a narrative you ever hear. And does brand drive revenue? Well, yes. Is that line difficult to draw sometimes? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So maybe we're looking at a set of features and we're making the assumption that, well, brand drives revenue. So we're going to make success criteria for this feature, brand perception. We're going to see whether feature A or feature B drives a certain perception of brand. Hmm. So working from the success criteria backwards is kind of my approach. I also, I speak with a lot of designers who are early in their careers who are worried that an objective mathematical or scientific approach to testing and evaluating their designs will stifle their creativity. And I find that it's, it's actually the opposite, that it frees you to be creative in all the ways that you enjoy mm-hmm. because you're not sweating the details and you're not, sweating, you're not sweating the foundation. You get the foundation and now you get to apply all of that creative thinking to, yes, I know the problem. Yes, I know what I'm driving. And now I can think of 10 ways to go ahead and, and do that. So that's another hurdle sometimes in all of this is just, Remember that, uh, give me a chance. Mm-hmm. Let's give ourselves a chance together to see whether this enables your creative thinking or <laughs> or yeah. doesn't. I mean, if you think that science and like scientific thinking is not creative, you haven't watched Apollo 13 or any, any movie about the Apollo missions or how they discovered Neptune and planets. You know, or how, I don't know, Jane Goodall, like, discovered, like, basic human behavior and apes. It, like, there is so much creativity that goes into scientific research because of, like, the hypothesis. And it's just always about that curiosity, like, hmm, like, I wonder if this is happening. And then you design a test. So, like, that for, like, obvious, like, business outcomes, like, that's definitely, like, uh, one way to design like a research method, right? You know, you're like, okay, we definitely want better brand recognition. And it sounds like at that point you've defined the problem earlier on that it's a brand recognition problem. How do you do, how do you define success criteria for generative research? Is it just like curiosity? Do you know what you're looking for? Or do you 
kind of are you do you have patterns that you assume are going to happen or are you just curious like why is this happening yeah when i'm in a generative space like a discovery based space where i'm trying to identify opportunities for a business problems we don't yet know exist that we could go out and solve it looks like a lot of different things and i usually get i start with really exploratory methods and then i evaluate the findings that i get from my exploration so interviews ethnography if if it applies in your field or you can do usability audits or just user flow audits Mm -hmm. where you're watching someone move through the main flows of your site and getting their attitudes and watching their behaviors surveys um, asking customers what they think the problem is sometimes they'll tell you things around the real problem sometimes they'll nail the problem right on right on the head hit the nail right on the head there but but after you get a sense of what problem might exist then you want to know is it real is it frequent how you know how big of a deal is it and that's where you can start being more specific and evaluative in your methods Mm -hmm. so you do all of these exploratory methods and then you get a sense of some potential problems now you can go write a survey and say hey have you ever experienced experienced this problem how frequently have you experienced this problem what does this problem uh, feel like to you on a scale and then i can come back around to the business and say 25 percent of customers report having problem a and when we look at the relationship between those who have problem A and those who don't, the people who have problem A spend a lot less with us. And now we're talking about dollars and now we're talking about 25%. Now we can go financially model things and That's impressive, all yeah. of that kind of stuff. So, so. like the, the, the success of generative research is more for you as like the researcher or whoever's performing the research, even if you're not, if you're just a designer performing research is I'm successful when I feel like I've identified problem patterns now and this is actually like the tipping point it's not it sounds like you've identified the tipping point on like where research meets collaboration with product management is now you're like okay well how frequent is it how big of a deal is it and what was the third one it was maybe reach i don't think i actually said that though yeah like how painful is it so how big of a deal is it yeah intensity yeah it's like intensity uh frequency and then like uh, prevalence or yeah I'll yeah that stuff but you identify like you said like okay 25 percent of our users are having this problem then you're helping product managers you're influencing prioritization exactly. at that point and i can't think of a better way for like design and product to get what they want you give them like the ammo to prioritize and you could tie dollars to it and then you also get to design the best experience as a result yeah and, that's that's kind of the yeah. the way I approach all of yeah. all of product and my role in product is just supporting designers and product managers, supporting them to prioritize the right way that mm-hmm. that is meaningful, to work on meaningful things. If I have an analyst by my side, we're even more powerful together. Yeah, just getting that support of the team. Yeah, so it's like uh research just as a methodology is just it's it's really like to help us understand what we need to focus on and 
like when we're not doing research, we don't understand the problem. When we're not doing research, we don't know how big of a deal the problems we're looking at are. And then we're just making assumptions that problems are a big deal. And then that's why 80% of features are not used in software because we're not using scientific thinking, you know, at that level of maturity. How do you, if you've had this experience before, how have you reframed that approach to research to maybe someone that's junior in their career that doesn't feel comfortable in the ambiguity of like research? Yeah, how have I reframed the yeah, the role? Yeah, or I guess like the like the process of research, like the discovery process. I think research scares a lot of people. It scared me. It is it is its own like art form. I see. Yeah, and people that are afraid of doing actual research and problem definition type work, usually their their history is that, you know, they don't if they if they're not designing screens or if they're not in sketch or if they're not creating Jira tickets, they're not doing their job. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes research work feels that way is that you're not making forward progress. How do you reframe it to sound like real work, which it is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it is squishy. I've I've often said when I I had a boss one time who was not a UX person, not a product person, and they were like hey you're doing great and I I said am I and how would you know if I wasn't because the ambiguity of research really protects me mm-hmm. in that case so so yeah I think it it is it does feel like magic hand waving sometimes there's a process I also encourage people to just start because any research is better than no research and to to be patient with yourself and your peers, realize that there is room for intuition in product and research all the time. So to make sure that, let's say you're reading through a set of a thousand open-ended responses from customers. Anything you'd like to tell us, that comment section on whatever your NPS or Mm -hmm. something like that. And you're reading through and you're trying to just get a sense of what problems exist. You're going to have some intuitions after reading those thousand comments. You're going to have some some hunches that maybe you only read one person out of a thousand mentioning something, but you wonder if there's something there. And it's okay to go ahead and pursue that from a research perspective. It's okay to say, let's find out if that really is there. As long as you're trying to prove yourself wrong as often as you're trying to prove yourself right. Yeah, you're not going, you're not going into research to validate your assumptions. You're going in for the sake of curiosity that's like that's what science is is we do it for curiosity's sake because we want to find objective truth right which really helped me in my research process is just because one person out of a hundred said something how they said it seemed interesting you pull on that thread and then you realize that it's the underlying lying cause of the rest of the customer's complaints right right and just allowing yourself to be curious would you say that intuition's like maybe an immature hypothesis? It certainly can be. A lot of the times, especially when you've spent some time at a company, you start to get a sense of things and mm-hmm. our brains are very good at detecting patterns. Yeah. So sometimes you have detected a pattern that's there mm-hmm. and you need you need to apply some objectivity there and mm-hmm. and really understand the pattern. Sometimes you see patterns that aren't there. 
I do it all the time. Mm-hmm. It's like my my thing in life is as a researcher is everything's a pattern, but it's really not. One one tactic I take for all of that stuff, and there's really nothing that builds rapport better for a product person is for everything that every hunch you have, if you can do all that you can do, apply all of your skills to try to prove your hunch wrong and it's still interesting and you walk into a meeting and you've already tried to prove yourself wrong it it just becomes that transparency of like hey I think this problem's here I tried to prove myself wrong it looks like there's about a 60% chance that the problem really is there and that it's really important and here's how I got to that number and here's everything that I did to try to prove myself wrong isn't that so much of a better sales pitch for a mm-hmm. feature idea? Um, yeah, like I don't, I don't want to believe it, but I'm pretty confident this is a problem, and we should look into this. Right. And that's that is pretty powerful. And you're telling you're telling leadership, you're telling decision makers, hey, I'm showing you a sure thing. Like I'm sure I've done all the like work, and as a business, this is a sixty percent gamble. This is a 75% gamble. Once they know that, it disambiguates the risk a little bit for them. It's like, well, mm-hmm. 75% chance of success, that feels pretty good. I've taken bigger risks today. So the more you can the more you can do that legwork, yeah. the easier it is to to build rapport and to get things done. So in the scientific community, it is really important to document all your process. So you have something to point to if people want to dig into it. Do you bring that same level of rigor when you're doing research? Do you have like documentation methods? Do you have like, I know like research plans are a common one, but do you have like other documentation methods to make sure that there is that rigor applied? I do. It's certainly not to the academic level, but the way I see it is the more transparent you are with what worked, what didn't work, what was rigorous, what was kind of lax. The more transparent you are about that, the more information you're giving a decision maker to make an informed decision. Mm -hmm. So this happens all the time where you go into a set of user interviews, you have 20 people scheduled over two weeks, you run through those, maybe you're listening to the recording after, maybe you realize it in the moment, like, oh, for two or three of these people, I asked a very leading question. Happens all the time. Happens to me all the time. Or I sort of told them the answer, I realize, now that I'm listening to this recording. So document that. So put that out there. Hey, especially for these three, it looks like I was leading in this way. And then it, it's up to the, the decision maker now to say, okay, well, that's enough for me. 17 out of 20 is still enough for me. 10 out of 20 is still enough for me. Or, you know, if you could go back and get three more people, five more people, I'd feel a lot better about making this decision. But it puts the ball in their court so mm-hmm. that you did your job and mm-hmm. here's some noise, here's some risk or error that's been introduced. Mm-hmm. The more transparent you are about that, the better. And that's something that I think I pulled over from academia where you want to you want to make sure you're showing all of the flaws in the study as well. Yeah. Is that a common practice? I guess I didn't go that deep into... Well, I mean, it's very dense reading, so they might have said it. I didn't catch it. But 
Yeah, is that like a common practice to like point out like, oops, this data's fudged a little bit? I think there, in most scientific journals, it's common to talk about the the shortcomings of a study. What we mm-hmm. didn't test was this. We added this question after we had already collected half of the data. There's a whole movement in the academic community, which I'm so on board with, about publishing your raw data for anyone to be able to access. To, yeah, to like run through Splunk or something. Or yeah, whatever. I mean, it's like, hey, I ran my stats. Here's my data. You, go ahead, run run your stats. Run my stats again, mm. and let's all make sure that we're coming to the same conclusion around this data. Hmm. So in that way, when you're pursuing truth like that, you're pursuing truth for the sake of the whole community that's that's where that transparency comes into play doesn't always happen doesn't (laughs) always happen but you know that's the philosophy some people want a nobel prize lie (laughs) some people Um, want publications or tenure or whatever yeah good yeah good thing we don't have that in business so rigor and documentation is just a form of transparency that's that's how i approach it yeah and I always have my documentation because honestly, I just forget. I forget what I did, and then six yeah. months later, I have to replicate something, and I go, "Oh crap! What? How exactly did I? How did? How did I clean this data up?" So I try to document that for myself and for you know other researchers with me or after me. But but beyond that, it's it's lovely to just provide a link. And it's like, hey, it's all there. All the math's there. Yeah, if, if you, you want to look at it. If you want me to explain it to you, no one ever takes you up on the offer. Oh, yeah, no. It, <laughs> I, I, I tell people that I don't make complex lucid charts or like research reports for people to read it. I just want them to look at it and be like, I believe you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you obviously thought about this. <laughs> yeah. That being said, yeah. low risk, little projects, less documentation always yeah. and forever. Your time is so valuable. Yeah. So if I'm just trying to determine whether we should sell more children's booties next week on on the site. Uh, I'm probably not going to document everything around Yeah, that. that's probably good. That's a good place. I think like enough research is when you have, you've seen patterns up to that point that gives you the confidence that it's not as big of a deal as, you th- as people think it is. Right. And you can point to research. You're like, I... I I mean, I, I, I hear you, but I don't feel like this is that big of a deal to prioritize. Are saying, like, I don't think you're making a big enough deal about this. But just being transparent and making recommendations and being collaborative is just so helpful. So to wrap up this episode, I'm going to ask you the question I ask every guest. Okay. Yeah. So the question is this. If you had a time machine... And you go back and alter something in your career. What would you change? And the caveat's this. You cannot say, oh, I'd never change anything. Like, my life's so good. Because it's very dishonest. Because if you really had a time machine, you would. Mm. You would do it. You would change. So, like, what would you go back and change? What would you have, like, improved? Well, can I say a few things and then decide which one? Because I'm not, I'm not sure. Generative research, yes. Okay, Let's yeah. Just kind of, like, some things are coming to mind. <laughs> One thing is that I I was coming from an academic setting. I thought that to get a really good career and to be very skill a very skilled professional that I had to have some amount of uh, rigorous yeah. schooling. And so I wish I would have 
for the sake of my student loan debt that I now possess. I wish I would have looked at that a little more critically earlier on in my, not, not to say school is bad, Woo. But, but like, for example, I was in a PhD program and I decided to not complete that program because I didn't actually need a PhD to do the kinds of work that I wanted to do. Yeah. So uh, sometimes I teach a class at a local college and one of the things that I tell those students is just like, hey, make sure that the kinds of things that are satisfying to you and kind of work that you want to do, once you figure out what that might look like, um, then decide how much school is necessary for it, mm -hmm. not the other way around. I'm going to go all the way with school and then I'm sure I'll have uh, valuable skills on the other side. So that's one thing that comes to mind. I was very afraid of scope creep early in my career, and now I think I'm very far on the other end of the spectrum where maybe I need to pull pull back a little bit and remember where some of my my boundaries are to make my make sure my role is successful and the tasks that I'm doing get accomplished. So there's a balance there that I wish I could sort of counsel my past self on but you know what you're hired to do is not a set in stone thing and if you can provide value in other ways and folks are willing to take a risk on you then you should you should pursue those opportunities hmm what else oh you know what this is top of mind for me right now take it take it for what it is but I wish earlier in my career I would have realized that leadership positions are not the be-all end-all for every human being in the world. That we are not all just inevitably walking this path to VP or C-level role. That That isn't like inherent success for your career. Yeah. So I wish someone would have told me that sooner because I earlier in my career I felt very doomed to manage and lead because the, those opportunities were um, around me a lot and folks would say hey yeah you're gonna be a, a good leader one day or something and I never was I never felt the the permission to go ahead and play in in a world in my brain where maybe all you do is contribute mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah I wish someone would have dug that up for me a little sooner in my career I think I think it's getting more and more defined too that there are like IC paths yeah to like the that like expert master level totally which is a breath of fresh air because I just I, I've met multiple reluctant managers that they're like this is the next step and sometimes it's the org's fault like that's just the only path forward if you want to stay at a company but yeah I really I'm really glad that they're having that conversation right now to allow for people to just go into like a principal role and be happy with it. Totally. Like, yeah. Yeah. DJ, is there anything else that is on your mind that you want documented? Mm, nothing super pressing. One thing you said earlier that I wanted to bring up, you mentioned process and like mindless execution of process sometimes. Yeah. And a one size fits all approach to process. I really like that, you poking holes in that. And one thing that I've said uh, to some folks earlier this week is when process is inflexible and you're just applying the same set of rules to every situation, if process doesn't live and breathe, then you're talking about protocol. 
And if you're talking about protocol, then your job can be automated, my friend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I really hope these processes don't work consistently because that is bad. That's a good point. It's not process, it's protocol. That's really good. I mean, and let's just be honest, a a fixed process never worked for anybody, but... Well, especially knowledge work and product. Oh, yes. You don't want to have like a a, 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 a 10-step framework for product management discovery then that'd be bad if that worked. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah it's job security. Like critical <laughs> thinking jobs, like we're good. As yes. long as, you know, we just embrace the ambiguity and stuff. Exactly. Cool. Well, DJ, this was a very um, enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your expertise. And just before we sign off, what was that book you mentioned? Quantifying? Quantifying the User Experience by Jeff Sorrow. S-A-U-R-O, I believe. Okay, cool. Well, then I'm going to look that up. Yeah. Yeah, You heard it here. That's (laughs) how I found out about the book. When I started telling people about it. DJ, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you You for having me. Thanks. Hey listeners, thanks again for listening to another episode of The Way of Product Design. If this episode resonated with you, please share it with your network and write a couple lines on why you found it useful. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help the show grow, please leave a review on Apple or Google's podcast platforms. As always, thanks for listening. You have a good one.